Hey, you knew that last weekend we had a holiday, right? What was that holiday? Man, you have already forgotten. Boy, really wowed the moms last weekend, didn't you? Very unforgettable. You know that next weekend we also have a holiday over the weekend, that holiday being Memorial Day weekend, yes. How many of you know, though, that today is also a holiday, and I have free coffee for anyone that can tell me what today's holiday is? Anybody, perhaps you came from a high, I think I heard it over here, Michael. Michael, you are right. Uh, Pentecost Sunday, okay? Perhaps you came, uh, perhaps grew up in a high church tradition, Catholic, Episcopal, things like that. You might have celebrated Pentecost Sunday. This is a holiday. And some of you might be asking, what in the world does Pentecost Sunday mean? Well, it means uh, actually a lot. And it flows right in to the study that we've been about this year as we study through the book of Acts. Uh, Pentecost was originally a Jewish holiday, and it was celebrated at the, at the time of the harvest. The harvest was, was ingathered, and what happened in the New Testament times, the way Christians celebrate Pentecost, is in Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, okay, at the Feast of Weeks, or the Feast of Harvest, the Holy Spirit came down upon those who had believed in Jesus at Pentecost. And Penta, I should have said, is 50 days following Passover, or 50 days after the resurrection. So we celebrate Jesus' resurrection on Easter, and then 50 days from the celebration of Easter that... Sunday that falls on day 50 is Pentecost Sunday, when the Holy Spirit in a unique way came and indwelled believers. Thus, the theme of our series and our theme for this year, dwell. Pentecost Sunday, we remember, we, we celebrate the fact that the Holy Spirit has come to indwell His people. And that was something that was actually uh, prefigured, promised in Acts chapter 1. Turn with me in Acts chapter 1. The, uh, the key verse of the book of Acts is Acts 1.8. And hopefully you've heard this verse before. I encourage you to, to memorize it. But it starts this way. It says, but you will be my witnesses when the, you, excuse me. Uh, I I should encourage myself to memorize the verse. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And the first word of the verse there, but, is a contrast from a question that Jesus had been asked just prior from the disciples, and that is, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, that question that they ask in verse 7 has everything to do with the passage that we're going to today in Acts chapter 7, okay? But Jesus' answer to them was, no, but, it's not for you to know the times that the kingdom will be restored, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, when he indwells you, and you will be my witnesses. What's a witness? A witness is someone who takes the stand and tells the truth, right? Right? Today in Acts chapter 7, we're going to see Stephen become a witness for Jesus. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And we've talked about through this series how we all are witnesses. If you believe in Jesus and if the Holy Spirit indwells you, guess what? 
You're signed up. You have a Jerusalem and a Judea and a Samaria that you are a witness to. And most of us are not going to have the exact same Jerusalem. Sure, we may, I may live on the same block as the Wyatts, so maybe our Jerusalem is kind of similar. But most of us don't work at the same place. Most of us don't live at the same place. And some of us uh, are, are not going to journey to a further out distance like Samaria. Uh, so we're all going to have these concentric circles of place where we are God's witnesses. We've said that this story in the book of Acts is the beginning, the birth of the church and the spread of the gospel. But the spread of the gospel and the story of the church doesn't end in Acts chapter 28. It continues on through us, and though it's, it's being written, okay? So the key verse, Acts 1-8, tells us what we're to do and where we're to do it. it originally, the, the 12 apostles, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Do you know your Jerusalem and your Judea and the Samaria that Christ has uniquely sent you to? The places that you are weekly, the places that you are, uh, perhaps monthly, that God has given you an opportunity to go, empowered by the Holy Spirit, to be his witnesses. And the point is, start where you are and then go everywhere. You'll see that slogan as you walk out of our lobby this morning, start here and go everywhere. Well, Acts 1-8 forms the outline of the whole book of Acts. And it's fascinating because for the first six chapters, of Acts chapter 8, guess where the church is located? Only in Jerusalem. They have stayed in Jerusalem. By the time we get to Acts chapter 6, Acts chapter 7, it's been about a year since the resurrection, possibly as, as long as two years since the resurrection of Jesus. And Jesus said, go to Jerusalem, but don't just stay there. Go to Judea and Samaria. And where are they still in Acts chapter 6 and chapter 7? They're still in Jerusalem. But what happens in Acts chapter 7 is they get spread, they get bumped on out to wider terrain, further out in the world. In fact, it's fascinating. If you look at Acts 1-8 and then compare it to Acts 8-1, this is fascinating. Flip to Acts 8-1. Look what it says in Acts chapter 1. We're going to hear this story about Stephen. I've got a truck it here. Uh, and then Acts chapter 1, after Stephen gives his witness, gives his testimony, look at Acts 8, 1. Saul approved of his execution. We'll talk about that. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church and Jerusalem. But look what it says after that. And they were all scattered where? Throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Now, Jesus' instructions go beyond Jerusalem, but it takes this persecution of Stephen, the temperature to be turned up for them to eventually go and spread even at the cause of persecution. As the church grows from Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost all the way to where we are today, the church is challenged, and we've seen that. Just because we have the Holy Spirit doesn't mean uh, life is just going to be kisses and roses and, and all good things, right? Right? So we've seen this pattern throughout Acts that the church is challenged. Uh, I think we have a slide of this. The church grows 
and then the church is persecuted. You have persecution in chapter 3 and 4, and then you have hypocrisy on the inside, and then you have persecution again in chapter 5, and then you have some division, some trouble on the inside in chapter 6, and where we are today in Acts chapter 7, we have persecution again from the outside, but that persecution is going to drive the early Christians to go out and spread throughout the world. And today, this key event that helps to cause that spread of the gospel and spread of the church is this story about this guy named Stephen, okay? This guy named Stephen. So let me pray for us, and then I'll tell you where we're going to go in Stephen's story, okay? Would you bow with me? Father God, as we look at this story, I pray that you would help us to not just see it as a story, but help us to see it as your plan unfolding of which we are a part of of which we too have a witness to bear, a place to be, a people to influence, God. Would you empower us by your Holy Spirit that we might be your ambassadors, that we might know this story as Stephen knew it, and that we might see Jesus, our great defender, and live our lives uniquely and powerfully in this dark world, Lord. Instruct our hearts in this moment. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Speaking of prayer, as I prayed that, I was reminded uh, we have begun a couple of months ago having prayer stations. If you need prayer this morning, as we respond in song after the sermon this morning, I want to invite you to just step out of your row, come to the back. There'll be some of us back there with candles. If you would like prayer, uh, maybe it's a struggle you're going through, maybe it's a decision you have to make, maybe you're just weighed down and you want someone to pray with you, uh, we would love to pray with you in response uh, today as we sing, okay? So what we're going to see this morning in this very long chapter, okay, uh, 60 verses, and we're actually going to have to back up a little bit, is uh, we're going to see Stephen's story, and I've put it under three headings. First of all, uh, who Stephen was, what Stephen said, and then thirdly, what Stephen saw, okay? Who Stephen was, what Stephen said, and what Stephen saw. Okay, so first of all, who Stephen was. And to do this, we're going to have to back up a little bit. This, these uh, passages will be on the screen. But join me uh, back, actually, at, in chapter 6. Okay? I didn't think I had enough verses to cover with 60, so I decided to include a little bit of chapter 6 and a little bit of chapter 8, too. So what am I, what am I asking for here? Uh, this is a long story, but it's, it, it, it is so important. So look at me with, uh, look with me at chapter 6, verse 8, where we read, we're introduced, um, or we introduced again to Stephen. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of, who, then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and those from Sicilia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council, and they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw his face was like the face of an angel on chapter 7, and the high priest said, 
are these things so? And Stephen begins his speech, the longest speech, the longest sermon, in fact, in Acts chapter 7, verse 2. We'll get to that in just a second. But first of all, uh, who Stephen was? Who is this guy that we're looking at? Well, if you were here last week, you know that we were introduced to Stephen. Stephen is one of the seven men selected by the apostles to be what we modern day call deacons, these servants of the church. And so Stephen... Uh, gets selected to help serve the widows of that time because there was a little bit of a division between the church and some of the widows were being overlooked. And so Stephen gets selected by the apostles to help manage and administer that important ministry so that the apostles could stay focused upon what God had called them to do. So he's uh, Stephen is a Greek name. He's not from Jerusalem. He's from the diaspora. They, uh, Jews have been spread all around the Mediterranean world at this point. But we learn from Acts chapter 6 that uh, Stephen is this deacon, this servant, and he's one that we're going to learn more about in Acts chapter 7 here. And then also there was this other deacon named Philip who we'll see in Acts chapter 8. So these guys that Luke introduces, Luke is the author of Acts, these guys that Luke introduces us to in Acts chapter 6, we hear parts of their story, at least Stephen and Philip, as we get to chapter 7 and chapter 8. So they're foreshadowed in chapter 6, and then we hear their story in Acts chapter 7 and Acts chapter 8. Uh, it's fascinating. When you think about the story of Acts and all the famous preachers that uh, God could have used, you think mostly about Peter and Paul. You'd think the longest speech, the longest sermon in Acts is probably from Peter or Paul. Paul's going to be converted in Acts chapter 9. But the longest sermon recorded is actually neither of those guys. It's this deacon, this servant named Stephen. And you see that uh, the people, as they're gazing at him, it says that they, they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And this is a reference probably to the fact that Moses, who Stephen's going to talk about, when he came down from the mountain, when God had talked to him, his face had this great shining about it. It was so bright because he had been before God that his face shined. And I think what the scriptures are telling us here is that there's another guy, another a messenger from God. Like Moses, his face shined. Stephen's face is shining because he's God's, one of God's appointed people telling Israel, here's the message. Uh, if you uh, just kind of read around chapters 6 and 7, you see the descriptions that the Bible gives us about what kind of person Stephen was. It says multiple times that Stephen was full of the Spirit, and he was also a person of wisdom. He was a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, chapter 6, verse 5, a man full of God's grace and power, a man of wisdom who spoke by the Holy Spirit. His face was like the face of an angel, we just said, full of the Holy Spirit. You see that repetitiveness there? Here's a man who is following after Jesus, who is full of the indwelling Holy Spirit. But not only is Stephen full of the Spirit, not only is he controlled by God, he's also an incredible Bible scholar. As he gives this testimony, you see that his knowledge of the Old Testament is incredible. He's full of the Spirit. He's also full of Scripture. And he's able to, to make the connection between Jesus' ministry and the, everything that was happening in the Old Testament. He's also... Uh, in addition to being the first martyr of the church, he's the first defender of the faith, really, in the, in the story of Acts. He defends the truth of Jesus against these religious leaders. Sometimes today we call that idea apologetics. When we say apologetics, you might think, oh, what are we apologizing about? We're not apologizing. Apologetics is the defending of the Christian faith. 
It's giving a defense. And here Stephen is the first apologist, the first defender of the faith in front of uh, this gathering of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish religious leaders. We're all supposed to be able to give a defense of the faith. Peter writes this in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. Peter says, but set apart, or excuse me, honor in the ESV, in your hearts, honor Christ as Lord, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do this with gentleness and respect. We are supposed to, in a, in a world of multiple ideas and re- religious philosophies and persuasions, we are supposed to, as followers of Jesus, be able to give a defense. And that's what Peter does here. He defends the story of Jesus against its attackers, against its detractors. Another place where we see this idea of defending the gospel is in Jude Verse 3, just one chapter of Jude, but Jude 3 says this, Beloved, although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Jude's saying, hey, I want to write to you about salvation, but there's all these other different philosophies and religious ideas, and I want you to be able to defend the faith. So Stephen is this defender. Here's another great mark of Stephen. Stephen had incredible courage, but also incredible compassion. Incredible courage as well as incredible compassion. Look at the courage that he has as he stands before these high religious leaders, beginning uh, in chapter 7, verse 51. Now look what he calls them. He starts name-calling here. Stephen's words, chapter 7, verse 51, he says to these religious leaders, You stiff-necked people! uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. Now, is that a courageous guy or what? He's standing here with his life literally on the line, and he's saying, you guys don't believe. You have the scriptures. You're experts in Old Testament law, and yet you have resisted what God is doing. You don't get it. He's courageous, but also look at the incredible uh, uh, compassion that Stephen has as he gets in verse 60 to where he is being stoned. He is losing his life. Look at verse 60. It says, And falling to his knees, Stephen cried out with a loud, with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. Isn't that amazing? Here's a guy that has compassion for these people that are throwing stones at him, but also has the courage to stand up against the status quo or false ideas. Guess what? You and I need both compassion, and courage. We need to know the scriptures. We need to know the story to be able to defend it, but we don't need to do that with an arrogance. We don't need to do that with a condemning tone. We need to do it with compassion, as Stephen had. I don't count this against them, because ultimately the story of God is the story of grace. He saves us by grace, not because we figure it out, but by his grace. Not because we're better than people that don't believe, but because God in his sovereignty has drawn us to Jesus. So we have no reason to lack compassion. We have a great reason to be courageous. One of the other things I think we need to mention as we talk about who Stephen was, he's not the first person that you might think of as as building the church, but what an incredible influence he had 
You think about who's the, who's, the, who's the most influential, who made the most impact in the early church. And I bet most of us would say it's the guy we're going to learn about, his conversion, in Acts chapter 9. It's Paul, right? But who's the testimony? Who's the witness behind Paul? Paul, at the end of this section, is holding the cloaks, holding the, the jackets of those who stone Stephen. Imagine how powerful that must have been for Paul, Saul at this point, to watch Stephen lose his life for the gospel. And I wonder how many times as Paul traveled with Luke, the author of Luke and Acts here, how many times he mentioned that story of Stephen's incredible courage and incredible compassion. I think, this is conjecture, but I think if, if we were to ask Paul when we get to heaven, if we were to ask Paul who is the most influential person in terms of your faith and your impact, he's going to say, I think the most influential person in my ministry, other than Christ, obviously, was Stephen as I watched him lose his life for the gospel. And Stephen is unaware of the impact. He dies. He dies a martyr's death, not knowing that his testimony, that his courage is, is going to be the spark that sends Paul off to be God's apostle in the chapters to come. You may not have the influence right now that you think you would like to have, but one of the lessons of Stephen is that sometimes we leave this earth not even yet knowing who we've influenced. And pray, pray to God that, that, that we do influence people. But Stephen took the stones, took the martyrdom, and bowed his head, closed his eyes, and died, not knowing the impact that his life and his death would have on the people that watched it. It's a reminder to me that parents, the, the biggest impact we may have is not the people, the friends, the neighbors that we're trying to reach out. The biggest impact we have might be, probably will be, the little ones that we raise up. The little ones that we parent that will go on after our lives are done and finished to have a, a more multiplying uh, impact for Jesus than we did. That's who Stephen was, this great person full of the Holy Spirit, full of incredible influence. What then did Stephen say? What Stephen said? Well, he gives, and we're not going to have uh, enough time here to do it a thorough job. Uh, this could be multiple sermons in Acts chapter 7. But what Stephen does as, as the Religious leaders say, are these things true, these accusations about you, that you are uh, belittling the law and that you are belittling the temple, are these things so? What Stephen does is he gives us an Old Testament history lesson. And he starts with Abraham and he walks all the way down through these Old Testament heroes. And his main point is this. God has worked outside of the temple, and God has worked before the law. And so for you to confine God's work to the temple and to the law is to do something that the Old Testament didn't even do. And so he makes that argument by looking at these five kind of eras of Old Testament history, and he starts with Father Abraham in verses 2 through 8. This won't be on the screen, so get your Bibles out and follow along with me if you can. Uh, 
chapter 7, verse 2, Stephen answers and he says this, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go from the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him, Abraham, no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave them the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. He starts here by talking about Abraham. And his main point is this. Abraham wasn't from this promised land. God called him in Mesopotamia. God was working outside of this land. And Abraham, verse, verse 5, didn't even receive the promised land. It says he didn't even get a foot's worth of this land. So you religious leaders that are making the temple and the land and the law central have kind of missed even how God worked before the law, before Moses. And before the land was given to Jacob and his descendants as the promised land. And then he goes on after that in verses 9 through 19, he talks about Joseph. We won't look at those verses this morning for sake of time. But what's Joseph's story? Joseph, and there's a, there's a lot here, okay, hang with me. Uh, what's Joseph's story? Joseph is also this guy that God used that, guess what, was rejected by God's people. His brothers sold him off to slavery. And yet, though he was rejected by God's people, God did not reject him. So Joseph becomes this great guy that delivers God's people from slavery in Egypt because he has ascended to the ladder of success in Egypt. And there, Abraham's descendants are enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. The God that, or excuse me, Joseph following the God of Israel, Joseph was rejected by God's people. And Stephen's going to say, you also rejected Moses. Guess what? You also rejected Jesus. Guess what? You're also rejecting me. Your eyes are not open. Even though you know the scriptures, you know your history, your eyes are, are not open to the truth of the deliverer. In verses 20 through 44, he, he focuses on Moses, and we'll pick that up in verse 30, okay? Verse 30, uh, Moses was not schooled in the law. Moses was schooled in the, in the customs of Egypt. He was, he was uh, adopted into Pharaoh's house, and he becomes an expert in, in Egyptian customs. But verse 30, verse 30 after he kills an Egyptian, he is scared, and he runs Moses runs to Midian where he's there, again, outside this holy land for 40 years in Midian. Verse 30, now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him where? In the wilderness of Mount Sinai, not in Israel, in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. 
I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and not, did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is what? Holy ground. Is Moses in Israel, in the holy place, in, in, the, in the promised land when God says you're standing on holy ground? No. He's off in the wilderness, and yet because God is there... God says, the place you're standing is holy. And God says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have, and have heard their groaning, and I have come to deliver them. And now, come, I will send you to Egypt to deliver God's people. And look at verse 35. This Moses, whom they, what? Rejected. So Stephen's building his case here. God has been working before the law. God has been working outside the land, and you guys have missed it, and your forefathers ha have missed it. And verse 37, look, Moses was this pillar, this pillar of their faith. They were always talking about what Moses taught and what Moses did. But look at verse 37. Moses said, there's someone greater coming than me. Verse 37. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. He's quoting Deuteronomy 18. And what is Moses saying? I'm not the deal. God has called me, but I'm not the deal. There's a, a, another prophet, a greater prophet coming after me. And so Stephen is using this to say, you're all into Moses. But even Moses said, there's a prophet greater coming after me. And you have missed it. Verse 45, he talks about Joshua. Where did Joshua, where did Joshua do his ministry? Where did Joshua do his work? He, he took the Israelites from the wilderness. After Moses had died, he, he led them into the promised land. But he was selected in the wilderness. Joshua brought them in and through this tabernacle before the temple was ever built by David or Solomon he brought them in Joshua brought them in to the land so God's history has been working before the temple was ever built before the law he goes on in verses 45 through 15 he talks about David and Solomon and who was David David was this favored one of God. He's this one that, that uh, said, sought after God's own heart, right? He was, David was favored, and yet David didn't get to build the temple that he wanted for God. So how can you hold David up as a hero and make a, such a big deal about the temple when your hero David didn't have a temple to go to, and yet God still shined on him. God, he still found favor with God. And he gets to the, he drops the hammer in verses uh, 48 and following. In verse 47, he said it was Solomon who built a house for him. And then he says, verse 48, yet the most high does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. And he quotes Isaiah 66, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? And then verse 51, he says, you stiff-necked, you stiff-necked 
uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit. He's getting on the lay of this land. I know, that's a lot to cover. He shows him this whole outline of the Old Testament to say, you've always missed it. You continue to miss it. Jesus was the point that all the pointers and all the prophets were pointing to. And you've missed it, and now you're not listening to me, another of God's spokesmen. Some of you, I can look at your face and I'm like, you're just like wiped out. You're just like, okay, that's Old Testament history. And I don't know, you know, several of those names. Take heart. You're not alone, okay? Someone is falling asleep next to you. No, they're not. But you need to know God's story. Let me give you one great tool, one great help to learn God's story even in our older years if we didn't have this start when we were young like the ones back in Sunday school this morning, right? Here's a resource we all need to know about. It's called the Bible Project. And we are such a visual, technical people. These days. The Bible Project is this wonderful website that by video tells you the stories of the Old Testament, tells you the story of Genesis in eight minutes visually. You can watch this with your kids. It is a wonderful resource. Go bookmark thebibleproject.com. Use this in your Bible studies. Use this in your community groups. They also have an app. And the app, the mobile app, is called Read Scripture. Now, don't go there now, okay? If I start hearing videos in a second, I'm going to come down there and slap your hands. Just kidding. But get these resources. Most of us are not familiar with the Old Testament. You're not alone, okay? Here's one help to help you do that. But the point of this is Stephen is defending himself against these charges, against the law and Moses and the temple. And even when he gets to his speech about David and Solomon, the texts he uses, Isaiah 68, show that God is bigger than the temple that Solomon built. God is bigger than any land or temple. And he tells these religious leaders, you have not obeyed the very law that you esteem so highly. You've rejected God's messengers. You've resisted the Holy Spirit. You've persecuted the prophets. All these people that you look to as your heroes were pointing to Jesus, whom you have rejected. And altogether, the land, the law, Moses, the temple, this holy place, the way they called it, were merely shadows of Christ and God's eternal worldwide plan. We're traditional people, aren't we? I mean, we get traditions, religious traditions or cultural traditions. We, we hang on to some of those traditions, and sometimes we even elevate them to unhealthy places, to ultimate places. And that's what Jesus was facing here, people that were oftentimes out of goodwill holding on to tradition. And yet Jesus comes on the scene, and the apostles and Stephen say there are some traditions that are good, but they are not ultimate. The law is good. What a gift to Israel that they would know what God wanted in a culture where other cultures were just kind of reaching for things, where gods were capricious and they didn't know what sacrifice to make. What a gift the law is. What a gift that God has given them a promised land that would provide for their needs. What a gift that they would have a temple to go and to offer sacrifices for and to worship. What a gift. But not as great as the gift of God himself the scriptures say Jesus came and dwelt among us, that he was, he tabernacled 
amongst us. That Jesus was the temple, the real temple. And now he says that God's people, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and chapter 6, that God's people are God's temple. Be careful about tradition. Maybe you're here this morning and you're here because you want to get your kids in church. Because that's the way my parents did. It's time to turn over a new leaf. It's time to be good Texas Republicans and get to church. Democrats go to church too. Sometimes. It's not about raising our kids with great Southern values. It's not about being in church. It's not about trying to protect uh, ourselves or our kids from the culture that's going crazy. It's not that we come to work on our marriages, though our marriages need work, and that's a good thing. But the church is about Jesus. We are not centering lives on community. We're not centering lives on good Southern values. We're centering lives on Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus that trumps all tradition, all forms, all shadows of the ultimate reality. Jesus. And they missed it. And I pray that if you're here this morning, you don't miss it, that you're not here to give your kids some good input, but you're here to see that your kids are encouraged and formed in Jesus. Amen. Well, there's a lot more I could say about that, a lot more I probably need to say, but I got to move on. And this is really the most important point. Point three, what's, who Stephen was what Stephen said, but finally, what Stephen saw. What Stephen saw. Did you notice back in verse 2 of chapter 7? Do you know the way Stephen started this whole speech? Look, he said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. How does he describe God? The God of glory appeared to Abraham. And I want you to look at the end of his speech here in verses 54 and following. What does Stephen see? He gives this speech when, verse 54, when they, were when they heard these things, they were enraged. And they ground their teeth or gnashed their teeth at him. And look at verse 55. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw what? The glory of God. Stephen said, the God of glory appeared to Abraham, and now Stephen is going to his death on the testimony of the gospel, and he sees the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. And what, why does this mean so much to Stephen? Why is he able to go to his death? Because he sees in this moment the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. The rest of the Bible tells us that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. But at this picture that Stephen has, he is standing before God. Why? Because Jesus is our advocate. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. 
It says, if we sin, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus, the righteous one. And so here's Stephen preaching his heart out and about to give his last breath to the gospel for, for the gospel. And what does he see? He sees the glory of God and he says he sees Jesus defending him at the right hand of the Father. As a human court is accusing him and condemning him, he sees Jesus defending him, his advocate. And that's how you die in confidence, is to see Jesus as your advocate. That no matter what's happening in the crazy court of human approval or whatever, that that Jesus is standing before God as your advocate, pleading your case. It's one thing to know the history of the Old Testament. It's another thing to know the author of history. It's one thing to know the story. It's another thing to know the author and the hero of the story. And Stephen knew the author and the hero, and he saw Jesus and his glory. It's one thing to defend the gospel. It's another thing to see Jesus defending you. How can we endure suffering with strength? By knowing, by seeing Jesus, our advocate. How can we endure unfair criticism and not feel condemned by it? By seeing Jesus pleading our case before God. How can we know that everything is going to be all right when it seems like everything is going wrong? Because Jesus is at the Father's side pleading our case. What's more important than knowing the history of redemption and the story of the gospel is in those weak moments to be able to look to the heavens and know, no, Jesus is advocating for me. Jesus forgives me. Jesus has died for me. And no matter what you and I face this week, if we can see Jesus the way Stephen saw Jesus, and we can endure all things. Will you pray with me? Maybe you're here this morning and uh, you're here for tradition. Or you're here for your kids, but the Holy Spirit is whispering to you right now, no, you're really here for yourself. You need to get right with the author of the story. Maybe you think that getting right with God is coming to church, but what you need is an advocate before God, and that advocate is Jesus Christ who took your sin on the cross, who bled and died for your sins so that you could be forgiven in the courtroom of heaven. If you will confess Jesus as your Savior, as your advocate, as your Lord, then he will send the Holy Spirit into your heart to comfort you, to transform you, to make you into a new person. You might just want to pray something like this. Lord Jesus, I thought I was going to get 
to you on my own merits or by tradition. I confess that my merits are woefully lacking and my tradition comes up way short. Jesus, I ask you to plead my case. I ask that your blood be applied to my sin to make me your child, to bring me into your family, and to walk with the Holy Spirit in newness of life. Father, for those of us that that know you, that have known you, I pray, Lord, that we would not just know the story, know the Bible stories, but that we would know the hero of the story. God, help us stand strong in defense of the truth in this age and help us to stand strong knowing that Jesus is our defense in this age. It's in his beautiful name we pray.